Hello everyone around the world. Welcome to our virtual event on how are food businesses coping with COVID-19 and its aftermath. I'm Rajul Pandya-Loj. I'm Director for Communications and Public Affairs at IFPRI and I'll be moderating this event. This event will focus on how private food sector operators are responding to the COVID-19 crisis. Much of the focus is on the public health responses, but food supply chains are operated by private operators. Amidst all this uncertainty, how are they responding to both the massive demand and supply shocks that COVID-19 is provoking to food systems? And how are they managing to keep supply chains operational? Will the adjustments they are making be just temporary or lasting? Do they see opportunities in this crisis to change business models such that they did not only create resilience to the impacts of COVID-19, but also to the other pressing challenges to food systems, such as climate change and poor diets? Thank you for joining our virtual event. We are eager to hear from all of you and to participate in our Q&A session that will follow the brief presentations, please submit your questions using the chat box. You can follow the conversation on Twitter at the hashtag IFPRILive, and you can post questions on Twitter by using hashtag AskIFPRI. You can post your questions at any time. We have an exciting program lined up for you, and without further ado, I'd like to begin by calling on Yo Swinnan, the Director General of IFPRI, for his introductory remarks. Yo, over to you. Thank you very much, Rachel. Um, good morning, good evening, uh, wherever you are. Uh, it's a great pleasure for me, a great honor to chair this uh, panel. I'm, I'm very excited also to do so. I think it's going to be a very insightful event again. And I would like to, at the start, I would like to, uh, to thank Rob Foss, who is the director of our markets and trade uh, division at IFPRI for putting together this excellent set of speakers. Um, in the past weeks and months, we've had a lot of events right at uh, IFPRI on related to COVID and food security and global food systems. We have had special sessions talking about the poverty issues, nutrition issues, food systems, gender uh, aspects, um, social programs, etc. And so today we are focusing on the role of the private sector. And that is very important because the private sector makes up a big share of our food systems and particularly of our food uh, supply systems. We know that COVID-19 has had a major impact on, on the global food systems. And essentially it comes through two major mechanisms. One is uh, it has caused a major economic recession. A lot of people have lost their jobs, have lost their incomes. Uh, companies have gone bankrupt, etc. And this has reduced incomes and therefore people can no longer afford to buy the types of food they uh, bought before. A second major element is the disruption of our food supply systems, our food systems. And these disruptions are very severe. And here we see that unlike, for example, the, what happened in 2007, 2008 with the food price spikes in global markets, is that in this case, everybody is hurt. So the consumers are hurt because their supply of food has uh, reduced. There may be no food or little food and at higher prices. But at the same time, the farmers are also suffering because they cannot sell their food. And so their prices are actually going down while the consumer prices are going up and there is local uh, surpluses. And of course, many people work in the food system in small or large companies. And so they have lost their jobs and their incomes as well. And many of these people are poor. Now, it's also true, though, that not all uh, supply systems have done so poorly. Okay, Several of the supply systems in the world have held up pretty well. 
okay? And as big a lesson as we can draw on the vulnerability of some of our supply systems, we should also draw lessons on the heterogeneity that some have done uh, much better and have been much more resilient to the changes. Now, these differences are not random, okay? Particularly the role of labor in some aspects of the food system is very important and the particularly the labor dense elements of some of the supply chains, those, that's where the problems have been concentrated. And so typically that's also why we see that in developing countries where supply systems are typically more um, labor dense, there the problems are larger than in rich countries, but also in rich countries there have been significant problems. Think about uh, reduced access to hired labor for processing or for harvesting, or the problems in, for example, the US and the German uh, meat processing facilities. Within the developing countries, we see roughly that the global value chains have held up uh, somewhat better than, than the local value chains. And there we see differences between a lot of the SMEs which are uh, present there, they're labor intensive, but at the same time, they use a lot of family labor, okay, which is less affected by the lockdowns. And at the same time, the larger companies are more capital intensive, more labor intensive, but at the sorry, more uh, knowledge intensive, less labor intensive, but they, their labor is all hired labor, which is affected by the lockdown. So we see very mixed effect, even within the different change there. I think most, most intriguingly right now is what's happening in terms of fixing them, trying to make them more resilient, dealing with the problems. And we know from ad hoc discussions that there's a lot going on in the field. A lot of entrepreneurship, a lot of innovations that are taking place to make the private value chains more resilient, as there is also a lot of innovation in, in the public systems as well. And so today I really look forward to hearing from people from the private sectors who are in the field to hear what they are trying to do, how they are trying to introduce innovations to make uh, their systems more resilient. And what I also heard from talking to people in the field have said that, you know, some of the, the changes we're making now, we were thinking about introducing in 15 years, maybe two decades, and suddenly everything is going at a very high, very intense speed, much more than we had anticipated. So I really look forward to hearing from our panelists about what they are doing and how they see uh, the developments in the coming months and, and even beyond that. Thank you very much. Yo, thank you very much for your remarks, for setting the stage for the event today. And I'm sure we'll come back to you later on for further discussion on the lessons to learn. So uh, let me move to our next speaker, who is Nemeka Ikegwonu. Nemeka is the founder and the CEO of Cold Hubs Nigeria. Cold Hubs is a social enterprise that runs solar-powered storage facilities in various parts of Nigeria that allows farmers and traders to properly handle and store fruits and vegetables, reduce food loss and waste, and improve incomes of farmers and traders, as well as of the women who manage the solar-powered storage units. Nemeka, our questions are for you as follows. How is your business faring during COVID-19? In many parts of Africa, we are seeing supply disruptions and food losses, especially for perishable foods like fruits and vegetables. The demand for your services must have gone up, or has it not? Um, what adjustments are you making to continue and to scale up your operations? Nemeka, we look forward to hearing from you, so over to you. Thank you very much, uh, Rajiv. Um, the Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, viewers from all across the world. My name is Inamaki Kegwono. And uh, prior to COVID uh, lockdown, we had uh, 24 operational code hubs uh, all across Nigeria. We 
had uh, about 3,517 customers. Uh, we were actually building 30 new code rooms in different farms, uh, produce aggregation centers, and uh, outdoor markets. But during COVID, we had only about six of our code hubs open and operational. Um, but the six code hubs signed up about uh, 32 new customers. You know, so we had a lot of lessons that we learned. But why did we reduce from 24 to six new code hubs, uh, six code hubs operational? Yeah, next slide, please. We actually came down to six operational code hubs because uh, in the month of March, suddenly there was a national announcement uh, saying that public places were all closed down, including our markets. And we incidentally, strategically situated our solar powered code rooms inside markets, inside the food markets. But those food markets were all closed down because you can have a typical food market in Nigeria where 2,000 people come in every day for buying and selling purposes. So the government felt it would be wise to close down those food markets. So suddenly, most of the markets where we had our presence were actually closed down. Next slide. So you have a market like Relief Market where we have more than 300 customers all closed down. So what we had was the wholesalers and retailers moved outside the market. They stand on the fence of the market and they do their daily uh, trading. And you also had uh, consumers who come to buy. But in the midst of the market closure, we had a new difficulty. And that difficulty was actually a national announcement uh, stopping interstate movement. So different states actually closed their borders. Next slide. So the closure of borders all across Nigeria limited the availability of food from coming from the high production clusters to the high consumption clusters. So you have a situation where a truck bringing in oranges actually dropped the oranges because the truck cannot get into the delivery state. You know? So that happened all across Nigeria. Uh, trucks were being stopped because there, were, there was a lot of law enforcement on the road preventing them. There was a lot of announcements. You know? so at the first few weeks, there were a lot of announcements and we didn't know what was going on. Um, but you know, by the month of May, gradually people started to understand what was actually going on, the do's and the not to do's. Yeah. Next slide, please. So part of those announcements was that the, the closure of public places does not affect farm clusters and produce aggregation centers. So we actually opened our code rooms in those sites and we saw increased storage. Because over a period of time, there was a lot of farmers who actually needed storage. They found it difficult to actually evacuate their goods from the farms to the markets because most of the markets were closed. And most of the truck drivers found it really difficult to actually go to those farms to move commodities out because the roads were blocked. There were police and law, other law enforcement checkpoints that were preventing that interstate movement. So we increased storage at our farm cluster sites significantly. Between 70 to 100% utilization rates we recorded in the six code hubs uh, that were situated in the farms and that was operational. Next slide, please. That increased storage continued. Some days we get more than 150 crates. Uh, our code rooms are designed for 150 crates. So there were some days where we got 170 and 180 crates. It shows that propensity to store by people who have 
for quite a period of time harvested, and we are waiting to evacuate their groups. Next slide. So we also saw a lot of need for our refrigerated van. You know, everyone was actually calling us, can you actually help us evacuate goods from the farms? You know, because we have this relationship with most uh, governments, uh, uh, local governments, we had a lot of need for our refrigerated van, but we had one small van that can only take up to three tons of food. But we also learned, and that is actually how we are positioning the growth of our company post-COVID. And on the next slide, I will talk about that a little bit more. Next slide. So post-COVID, what we've now seen that in those farm clusters where we have three-ton solar-powered cold storage, we are going to increase them to 10-ton solar-powered cold storage. There is need for cold storage in those farm clusters that can take a significant amount of food. But in addition to those solar-powered cold rooms, we are going to attach every solar-powered cold room to a 10-ton refrigerated truck that can actually go in and evacuate that food and bring it to the market. We will still maintain our three tons in outdoor markets. The markets are still not open, but there has been a relaxation of all the rules. And that's what we are planning as cold hubs uh, post-COVID. Next slide. And that is all from me. I'm just showing you this picture of what our urban markets looks like. It is really massive. So the government quickly had to uh, close all the markets. They are still closed. And we have our tiny cold hub there. Um, uh, each day, such markets receive between 2,000 to 5,000 people. Thank you very much. I'm available to answer some of your questions. Thank you. Nemeka, thank you so much for sharing with us the experience in Nigeria and how you're pivoting and positioning your business. I'm sure we'll come back to that in the Q&A session to learn more about how that's happening. Let me turn to our next speaker, who is Robert Derede, who is the Executive Vice President for Foods at Unilever. Robert, what disruptions is your company facing in supply chains and in the demand for food? How is Unilever adjusting? What actions are you taking in your supply chains? How is this impacting your innovation plans? And are you expecting that COVID-19 will have lasting impacts on the nature of food demand and hence on your business? Robert, we look forward to your remarks. Over to you. Thank you, Rajul, and hello, everybody. Um, yeah, let's go to the, to the first chart, please. So let me take you through uh, some of the, uh, the impacts that we saw across our supply chain. And I don't think they are really a lot different than what many other players suffered in, uh, in this scheme of things. Of course, the first thing that was confronting was this import and export restrictions, you know, countries closing down borders, um, partly also because they wanted to make sure that they kept the foods for themselves. Luckily, this didn't last too long because where people also sit on something, they also have a desire for something. So there was a need for trade and we were able, with quite some good support from NGOs and like WEF, to quickly unlock uh, borders to, uh, to help that, uh, that supply came through again. We also saw governments taking measures in terms of closing down all non-essential sites. And it's of course quite debatable whether a mayonnaise plant or an ice cream plant is essential or not. Uh, but also there, after a first, let's say, weeks of uncertainty, when we were able to show the, you know, the strict hygiene measures that we were putting in place in our factories, it was quite uh, doable to then open up the essential sites again. The bigger challenge was indeed the shortage of workforce, not only because we saw that people were falling ill, but also because some people were afraid to come to work or had difficulties to come to work. 
We literally organized taxi transports to help factories come to workers. We moved factory, factory workers from, for instance, an ice cream plant, which there was less demand for, towards foods plants. Um, and we even had people, in some cases, sleeping in the factory simply because the risk of the transport was bigger than the uncomfort of having to stay in the factory. Naturally, we saw some major changes in buying behavior, and I'll come to that in one of the next chart. And the biggest challenge was probably the need to unlock the sudden capacity that was coming our way. We saw that the out-of-home channel was immediately closed, and there was this huge force of out-of-home consumption moving towards the in-home. And even some consumer panic in certain markets where people were simply just buying all the food that they could get. I think we were wise to at least in a very quick stage immediately decide that we would cut 65% of our portfolio. So we had our factories only focusing on the top 35% of our items and that literally helped us to secure the supply for, uh, for, for, the, for, those, uh, for those items. And maybe we tend to forget sometimes, but not all people working in supply chain work for, for a factory, of course. So we also saw a lot of planners and procurement people having to work suddenly from their attic or garage and having to connect with the world to secure more raw materials, more packaging materials to fulfill the demand. Next chart, please. I think the first thing that we said is that it was high priority was all about people and safety. So we put in place tier four measures across all our factories. And with that, we were able to keep 98% of our global factories open. We did a very deliberate thing to also call out the heroes of these people that were working in the front line. Remember that in the media at the time, we were seeing a lot about hospital workers, etc. In our own internal organization, we were really hearing the people that were leaving the relative safety of their home to work and to man the lines and to make sure that the food supply was coming through. And lastly, you know, for the large majority of the office workers that were now suddenly forced to work from home, we were very attentive and very appreciative that they needed to combine their family life with their office life. So suddenly we saw that people had to balance between teaching and homeschooling their kids, but also being joining in meetings and picking up the additional pieces of work. And we were sharing a lot of best practices on that. Next chart, please. Once we had taken care of our people, we decided that we also had a role to play in communities. And there were a variety of activities that we took across the globe. In totality, we have donated more than 100 million euros of goods and we're still counting. Um, and we also gave close to half a billion of credit to those customers and suppliers who are in need in order to, that the business could continue to thrive. But also some nice local examples like using our R&D facility in the UK to build respirators for hospitals. Or for instance, this example in Brazil where the Heineken plant was closed because it was a non-essential factory, but their factory workers came to the Unilever site to actually help us produce more hand sanitizers. So really trying to be flexible and putting the people in place where we could make the most out of that. Next chart, please. Then about consumer demand, what do we see? Of course, we saw a massive shift from channels that were locked down or found to be unsafe towards channels where people could buy. So we saw this massive shift to supermarkets leading to out of stocks. We saw, of course, e-commerce taking a big boost and even cash and carry, which in many markets opened up for the public in order to help to serve that demand. But also change in consumer behavior suddenly people were all forced to put all the home consumption from inside their home. There were no more takeaway meals, no more restaurants to be opened. So we started to inspire consumers what to cook at home, how to cook healthy meals, how to stay inspired. But we also saw a rising demands and we still see that there's an increased demand for healthy food, 
for immunity propositions. People are trying to improve their health and to boost their immunity to face this virus and any other potential diseases coming up. And of course, as we are a branded manufacturer, we put a lot of effort on our brands and the messaging that we wanted to convey. We are a brand or a company that believes in purpose. And this was, of course, in that sense, also a moment that our brands needed to really stand up and be vocal. Whether it was about Dolph thanking the frontline workers in hospitals or indeed our ice cream business to, you know, in a humorous way, but uh, tell people to stay apart, but to stick together. Next chart, please. But if one thing should come from COVID, I personally hope that it will be a change for our food systems. We need a food system that is much more inclusive and much more sustainable than it is today. And I think COVID gave us a shock in the food systems and we need to make sure that we now take the right kind of actions and take it forward in the right manner. If we want to localize everything, which is this first feeling of protectiveness, let us protect ourselves, we have to watch out because we have 8 billion people in the world, more than a billion are obese, and almost a billion are going to bed hungry every day. We need to form a supply or a food system that is able to be more inclusive from smallholder farmers up, and we need a food system which is much more sustainable. We're eating roughly 75% of our food from 12 plants and five animal species only. That is not enough biodiversity. Our earth will not be able to regenerate itself like that. So we need to change that. And that is why two weeks ago, Unilever has stepped up to us another commitment and we will invest another billion euros over the next 10 years in this climate fund to help to drive some of these changes. And I would like to call on everybody in this call to, not, to take on, I don't want, you know, normally we are a bit of averse that competition does the same. This is where I would want everybody to join in because we need to do, we need to do this as one collective to come to this system. That is my hope that at least this COVID situation is bringing us also a greater good. Thank you. Yeah. And then maybe for my last chart, the good news is COVID uh, will pass, but purpose is forever. Thank you very much. Robert, thank you very much. Very much appreciated your presentation. And I know we will come back to uh, you in the Q&A for further elaboration, especially Happy to answer actions. any questions. Thank, Thank you. you. Our next speaker is Stephen uh, Bartholomews, who is the Policy Director of Food Industries Asia. Stephen, you work with a huge network of large food companies that operate in Asia. What are you hearing from these companies regarding how they're addressing this crisis? How are they adjusting to protect the integrity of their supply chains? And are they seeking collaboration through Food Industries Asia? What kind of policy support are these businesses in your network seeking to make the supply chains more resilient? Stephen, you look, we look forward to your remarks. So over to you. Thank you very much and good evening, uh, good morning uh, to all of you who are joining this call. Um, delighted to be on this call and thank you very much uh, for, Ifri for giving me this opportunity to be on the call as well. I think I'll start by saying that across Asia, and this is based on two studies that we've carried out, one in April, well, end of March, April, and the other end of April and May, uh, where we looked at the impact of COVID-19 on food security in Asia, and we also looked at the impact of COVID-19 on price pressure across Asia. The good news from both of these studies is that the food supply chain in Asia has been remarkably resilient 
given the challenges that we have faced. And the challenges have been quite monumental. Um, obviously, you know, you've had government restrictions, lockdowns, et cetera, border closures. closures uh, and this has had both a direct and an indirect impact on the industry. And we've seen shocks both on the supply side as well as on the demand side. Um, as the previous speaker alluded to, I think one of the biggest challenges that industry has faced here in Asia has been related to labor shortages, input shortages, and border challenges. I think this has come about largely in terms, if you look at input challenges or if you look at labor shortages, um, in some markets in Asia, you're just not manufacturing for that particular market. You're, you're manufacturing for the region. And if you take the food value chain, it takes various inputs to eventually produce the food that you need. And our role really as an industry association has been to carry out this sort of uh, research in partnership with organizations like PwC and Oxford Economics where we can use this data to actually inform government policy. On the demand side, we've seen very similar issues as you have seen across the world. And that's things like panic buying, uh, food service restrictions, as well as reduced consumer confidence and spending power. A lot of the labor force in Asia are paid on a daily basis. Um, and for a lot of these daily wage earners, it's been a huge challenge. A lot of them have lost their jobs or in some markets where there have been restrictions where you can only have about 50% of the labor force show up to work. This has been uh, a tremendous challenge. But as I said, um, the business and the businesses that we work with have been remarkably resilient uh, in the face of these challenges. And businesses also must follow mitigation steps as we move forward if, you have to, if we are to recover from this crisis. And we see this uh, as, as three steps, if you like. Stabilize, improve, and to refocus and reposition. Uh, current, we, the stabilized stage was really the first couple of months following the announcement of the pandemic, where we saw things like crisis management uh, taking place. And we've kind of now moved in, if you like, to the improve phase, where we are seeing rapid improvements in business performance. And this is driven by rapid cost reduction, as well as uh, sustainable capital management. Going forward, however, when we look to refocus and reposition our businesses. And that is in the next sort of six to 12 months. Um, the big challenges are going to be around supply chain management and looking at your supply chain across Asia. Um, a lot of the, the inputs that I spoke of earlier are coming from various sources across the region and dependency on one geography uh, has had an impact on several of the members and the companies that we have worked with. So it's been a sort of a sharp learning curve 
for a lot of industry players where they've had to really pivot and shift and look at how they manage their supply chains and how we move this forward. I think it's also important to, to look at smallholders and how some of these large companies work with smallholders because if you take Asia, more than 60% um, of the agricultural input comes from smallholders. So they play a very critical part in the way um, that we operate. I think finally, I'd like to say that, I mean, you know, it's a no brainer, but the impacts of COVID uh, on our industry will last long uh, and beyond the current crisis. So some of the things that we are seeing here in Asia, for example, um, are also accelerated consumer trends. Uh, we've seen more and more consumers going into online shopping across Asia. Uh, the amount of online shopping has increased exponentially across the region. We are also seeing a push for more and more digitalization where companies are looking at their operations and trying to figure out, do we really, first of all, need the sort of labor forces that we need? And do we move to more high value jobs where we're using things like artificial intelligence? But I think really where we are going to see um, a lot of big changes is around supply chain diversification. And this is where you will need a combination of both localized as well as regional and diversified supply chains uh, to manage this crisis. And then finally, it will all be about integration, building and understanding uh, and resilience moving forward. So I'll stop there, but I'll be happy to take questions and also add some additional comments towards the end. Thank you. Thank you very much, Stephen. And we will definitely come back to you later on uh, during the Q&A. Uh, before I come to our next speaker, I'd like to remind all of you watching our event that you can submit your brief questions in the chat box. We will be coming to the Q&A session soon, so please do start submitting your questions. And our next speaker is Tom Riordan. Tom is well known to all of us. Tom is Professor of Agricultural, Food and Resource Economics at Michigan State University, MSU. Tom, you've written a lot about food supply chains uh, and how they are rapidly changing around the world, especially in low-income Africa and South Asia. You have emphasized the enormous dynamics of especially small and medium-sized food processing, trading, and retail businesses in what you're calling the hidden middle of the food system. So, is COVID-19 changing any of these dynamics? What are the main changes and innovations you're seeing in food supply chains because of COVID-19? Will these changes be lasting? And what should governments be doing to improve the resilience of supply chains and hence the survival chances of small businesses? Tom, we look forward to your remarks, so over to you. Tom, you're muted. Yes, can you hear me now? Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> I'll speak first about food supply chain characteristics in developing countries just before COVID-19, because I think it's very crucial context to be able to understand what are the impacts on the system now. Then I'll talk about COVID's impacts on the different nodes or segments of the food supply chains. And then I'll briefly discuss specific input impacts and responses of large companies and especially of SME, small and medium enterprises. First, before COVID and now, food supply chains in developing countries are extremely important to national food security. 
This is seen in the huge importance of the share of purchases in national food consumption. I think these are surprising numbers. In Africa, 80% of all food consumption is purchased. 80%. In India, 92%. In Africa and India, 60% of all food consumption is done in cities, in urban areas. And of the 40% of national food consumption that's in rural areas, 50% is purchased. In Africa, only 20% of food comes from subsistence farming. In India, only 8%. So we really have a commercialized food system in these poor regions. 99% of the food markets are operated by the private sector, small and large. Only 1% is operated by government. So governments and donors are not going to be able to even get near replacing what markets are doing uh, in this crisis. In Africa and India, 80%, 80% of the food supply chains are operated by small and medium enterprises. Large companies are at most 20%, so they're just emerging their small slice of the pie. But people are not focusing much on what is that 80% doing, the small and medium enterprises. So my first message is that food markets are extremely important to food security, and by far the main uh, players uh, are the small and medium enterprises. Second, COVID's main impacts on food supply chains have been mainly on downstream and midstream enterprises, with most impact on the retail and food service sector, and the second level impact on wholesale logistics and processing, and least on the farm sector. Although among farmers, the impact is more on those who hire a lot of labor, um, and uh, that's much more in India than in Africa. Third, large companies have been affected much less than small enterprises by COVID. Large companies have, are more capital and less labor intensive. They have more diversified and extensive procurement supply chains with more options and alternatives. They have more inventory and cash to draw on. They can shift more to supplying their existing supermarket clients. They can focus their business on core products to weather the storm. Yet still, COVID has hurt their operations. They've responded by diversifying their procurement sources, busing in workers, going more digital, shifting toward more use of mobile money, e-commerce, and e-procurement. E-commerce companies like Alibaba, Flipkart in India, Jumia in Africa have had large increases in their business uh, during this time. And the acceleration of e-commerce in developing countries is likely to last well beyond COVID. Fourth, small and medium enterprises have been most affected by COVID, hit by mobility restrictions of workers and clients, drops in demand, and input shortages. For example, egg retailers in Nigeria lost half their business in a couple months. Feed mills had to dial down their output due to worker and input shortages. Fishermen in Malaysia couldn't get fish to market. Wholesalers in India couldn't find truckers. Street vendors in small restaurants and small shops all over these regions have found their in-person customers disappearing fast. But far from staying just victims, the already dynamic small and medium enterprise sector that was blossoming and burgeoning before COVID has strategically responded and adapted to the crisis by and large. And many of the adaptations are, I think, here to stay. First, owners of uh, small and medium enterprises have diversified 
their product lines. For example, shifting toward adding volume, such as processing, a value, such as processing for longer shelf life. Second, small firms have changed the composition of their inputs and diversified their sourcing arrangements, just as we see large companies have. For example, Nigeria feed millers have shifted more toward non-imported inputs. Third, SMEs have increased their use of contactless online banking and mobile money to keep business flowing. Fourth, small enterprises have rushed toward the use of uh, e-commerce. Let me dwell on this for a second. Logistics firms, associations, sometimes in collaboration with governments such as in India and China, have started or intensified the use of e-platforms to link, uh, to find and link truckers to suppliers and retailers. Wholesale markets have adopted e-platforms to link wholesale markets and wholesalers with retailers. In some cases, this has been in partnership with e-commerce companies. For example, in Myanmar, the Bean and Pulse Wholesaler Association set up an e-platform a few weeks after COVID hit, as did the Produce Wholesaler Association in China and the Fish Wholesale Market in Oman. Retailers and food service small and medium enterprises have started to partner with e-commerce and delivery startup small enterprises, so small with small, uh, that have spread quickly during COVID uh, to resume business with their clients. Some of this e-commerce resilience strategies has been small enterprises in retail and food service with small enterprises in commerce and delivery logistics. For example, in Thailand, fishermen have partnered with an SME platform, e-platform and delivery companies to reach their clients from which they had, had been at first cut off by COVID. Another example is in India where Swiggy, a provider of e-commerce and delivery services for SME restaurants, scaled up its operation and bundled it with a credit program for its clients to restart their business and bounce back from COVID, as well as giving them hygiene training and supplies in addition to the loan program. Some of this e-commerce resilience strategy has been SMEs in food supply and retail and food service partnering with large companies such as Alibaba, Jumia in Africa, Flipkart in India. These have worked with SMEs, uh, retailers, and independent supermarkets to set up hyper-local delivery to get uh, their resumption of service going to their customers as well as linked to their suppliers. So large companies, large e-commerce companies with small companies. In some businesses in developing regions, be they small or large, have not taken COVID lying down. It's hit them, it's hurt them, but they have deployed, deployed an array of strategic responses that I think will be enduring business practices in the recovery and post-COVID period. Thank you. Tom, thank you so much. Fascinating remarks, fascinating numbers you shared with us at the beginning. I'm sure we'll come back to that in the Q&A. We are now in the Q&A part of the program. So I do invite colleagues from around the world, please do submit your questions uh, using the various chat boxes, various modalities we have, uh, and uh, we are eager to receive them. Uh, please feel free to share your name and institution if you wish. And as a reminder, you can also submit them on Twitter using the hashtag uh, Ask IFPRI. I will read one question at a time and I will direct it to a relevant speaker. 
Uh, and in some instances, and in the interest of time, I may consolidate some of the questions. I will also call on uh, Jo Swinnen and Rob Voss, the two organizers of the event today, uh, in a few minutes for any questions that they may have. So a heads up to them to stay tuned uh, to ask the panelists any questions. But let me now start taking the questions that are coming in from online. And the first question I would like to direct to you, Nemeka. This question is coming in from Artibioke Adiola with the Lagos State Government in Nigeria. And the question is as follows. COVID-19 outbreak has awakened awareness on nutrition, but not on hygiene. The hygienic approach is a great challenge for smallholder farmers. How do we mitigate the hygienic processing of food? What will work for processors in the new system that demands a change of approach, especially towards more hygienic? Nemeka, over to you. Any comments on that question? Sure. Um, thank you very much for that question. I think the, uh, it's obvious that smallholder farmers need a lot of education. And that education has to be at the pace and in the language that they understand. You know, there needs to be education around hygiene. There needs to be education around processing. There needs to be education around packaging and handling of food. You know, our social enterprise developed uh, uh, a whole suite of post-harvest management education suited for smallholder farmers in the different languages uh, of Nigeria and in comic book format to make it more entertaining, you know. But what we've discovered that in the course of delivering the education, you still need more education because you have people who have practiced agriculture for more than uh, four to six decades that do not have that requisite skill. The only skill inherent are those skills that they use for food production only. And that's their focus. And we are trying to make them think outside production to see that there is added value from production. There needs to be education. Thank you, Nemeka. I'm sure we'll come back to you later on. But let me direct the next question to both Robert and to Stephen. This question is uh, coming in. What do our speakers representing food businesses see as the topmost role of government at this time of economic reopening amid the COVID-19 pandemic? Let me ask Robert first, and then I will come to Stephen. What do you see as the topmost role of government? Robert? Uh, yeah, good question. <clears throat> I think we, we, I referred already a bit to it in the beginning when the first reaction was to close borders. I think we have to really realize that if we want to make food accessible to everybody globally, we need a global food chain. Yeah? Um, so we need to make sure that governments stimulate that openness and stimulate that we can move to an efficient and a sustainable supply chain and food system. Uh, so that would be my first and foremost. And of course, I think ensuring that there is safety and fairness in all the work that's being done in terms of circumstances and in terms of the way how we produce food and, uh, and ship food, etc. That would be my, uh, my plea and my call out. Thank you, Robert. Let me come to Stephen next. Thank, thank you. Um, that is a good question. And it's actually a question that um, we did ask some of um, the food industry companies that were surveyed in, a, in the study that was done by PWC in partnership with Food Industry Asia. And I think that the first thing uh, that is critical, because we did see issues related to this in many markets across Asia, is that I think the overarching, for me, uh, point is that there needs to be a recognition of the food supply chain, the whole food supply chain, as an essential service. We saw this, we saw numerous challenges here in Asia where 
governments would not recognize one particular component. Just take something like packaging, right? Food packaging. It's, it's critical uh, to get your food safely to your consumers. But if a particular government doesn't see uh, a packaging company or a company that manufactures packaging material as an essential service, that becomes a huge problem. So I think the first and most important point is the recognition of uh, the food supply chain as an essential service. I think the other challenges that um, we saw here in Asia and what food companies said was critical in terms of government policies going forward is first of all, the protection of the labor supply. And this is ensuring that people can get to work because for a lot of manufacturing, it's labor intensive. Uh, I think that we were also looking at issues such as preservation uh, of cross-border trade. We had some governments here in Asia um, closing up borders and also going into protectionism. Um, you know, we had Vietnam um, that for a few weeks stopped the export of rice. Um, and going forward, if you have these kinds of measures where governments when it comes to food security, if, if they move on to, if you like, the other side of the fence, which is sort of protectionism, uh, nationalism, and focusing on just sort of stockpiling stuff, but not looking at the whole food trade, then that becomes a challenge. So I think that um, it's, it's critical that the supply chain has to be looked at holistically by governments, uh, certainly here in Asia. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Stephen. Yo, let me come over to you. I'm sure that uh, the panelists have raised some very interesting questions in your mind. So perhaps you'd like to direct one or two or three of them over to you, Yo. Yeah, I, I mean, I, they raised a lot of questions, but I, I learned a lot as well. So uh, just a few, let me ask a few short questions on for each of them, maybe. So I was really intrigued by uh, Nimaka's uh, uh, story about basically the shift in the gold hub investment from the markets to the the pharma clusters and so and with the with it basically the refrigerated trucks etc and so my question to him is whether he sees this as a fundamental shift that will remain after the covid crisis and this is like a, a major kind of structural change that will he expects to stay there or that this was just, will just be temporary in his mind uh, for robert and Stephen, my question would be to link it a bit their story a bit with Tom's presentation, where Tom has really identified some of the institutional changes that are going on in the supply chains, and whether they can <clears throat> reflect on that a bit and give maybe some examples of how, uh, what has happened in, in, within their companies or their industry, what they see as, as crucial changes that have taken place. Also linking with the, 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 the smallholders, for example, and the, which are supplying to them. And uh, my question to Tom is that, uh, I mean, Tom has given a great story in terms of the big patterns that we see. And so, I mean, in my question is rather how important are these trends in, uh, in, for example, the poorer countries in Africa and India? I know in China right now, I understand there's a billion people who are online, okay? And so Alibaba is even very present in rural areas. But it seems to be that in poorer countries, this may be less still developed. And so my question is how relevant is this also for these poorer countries? Thank you. Thank you, Yo. Let's begin in the order then. Nameka, over to you first, and then we'll continue, Don. Thank you very much, Yo, for that question. Um, I don't think the cold hub is going to remain in farm clusters. 
and horticultural produce aggregation centers. I think the shift is not fundamental. It will definitely go back to the markets. You know, you know our markets will definitely reopen. They are critical because our markets are not only for business, but they also are cultural. They have some traditional beliefs behind them. Our markets, especially the food market, serves as a melting pot or melting point for fresh produce. You know, it is actually cultural in a sense that our people gather to not only feel the freshness of food, but to haggle on prices. You know, in spite of e-commerce, in spite of the I mean, the expansion of uh, supermarkets all across Nigeria. I think our markets remain the key place to uh, have access to uh, fresh produce uh, and also haggle and get the best price. So cold hubs will remain. Uh, we will continue serving farm clusters. We'll continue serving produce aggregation centers. And once the market reopens, we will also reopen our cold rooms in the markets. Yes. Okay, shall I take the, the next question? Yo, thanks for, uh, thanks for that question. Um, there's a lot of institutional changes going on at the moment, um, and, and they are driven by, by our desire to, to this more sustainable uh, food system. I think one of the things that we've realized, if we really want to come to a net zero emission, um, we will not only have to look at the way how our factory produces and how we transport, but it means that we will also need to you know, work together with farmers to make sure that we are growing the crops that are, you know, needed to do so, yeah, and in a way that they are indeed also contributing in a positive way. So, you know, that's why we have also installed this regenerative agricultural code that we are now working on with our suppliers and inviting new suppliers to onboard on to indeed drive that change together. And actually there are multiple of such initiatives, whether it goes from, you know, the raw materials that we put into our food products, whether it's talking about, you know, the packaging that we're using and how are we going to make sure that not only all our packaging is recyclable, but that we also ourselves stimulate the demand for recycling by including recycled material into our packaging. Yeah. And that is talking with suppliers, but then also again with governments to make sure that they allow that because funnily enough, we still have governments that disallow using recycled material in packaging. Yeah for all the right reasons, but there are solutions for that. And we need to work together as one collective to tackle these initiatives. Yeah? We're quite open on them. So if you go to our website, you can see our commitments and what kind of help is still needed. And I invite everybody to, to join in on that, um, to solve that collectively. Stephen, over to you. Yes, um, so just, just just to follow up on 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 that question, um, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, I think that we are really right now in that refocus and reposition stage. So I think the companies, the forward-thinking companies, the ones that are going to be resilient and ride this crisis, have already started that refocus and reposition stage, which is where we are looking at uh, business integrity, uh, scenario planning, repositioning the way they do their business in this so-called new normal. Um, and I think there needs to be a recognition going to uh, the comments that were made by, by Tom. There needs to be a recognition of supporting smallholders uh, and in ensuring that smallholders and SMEs remain resilient, especially those who are supplying uh, 
uh, to the large companies. I, I just had a very quick glance, and I was very interested in Tom's presentation as well, where he mentioned that a lot of SMEs have been resilient, uh, which I'm, I'm sure they are. But I was also interested, I, I came across this study by the Sun Business Network, where they had looked at uh, SMEs in, in Africa and in Asia. And I think it was interesting to note that something like 94% of the SMEs that they surveyed, and they surveyed, I think, over 350 SMEs, uh, said that they were impacted uh, by the pandemic, mainly due uh, by decreased sales. So I think for about 60% of them, it was due to decreased sales. Uh, for a lot of them, like some of the large companies, so about, I think it's 49% said they had challenges accessing inputs. And I think one of the bigger challenges for a lot of these SMEs and for uh, even consumers, um, and the challenge that these SMEs faced was financial. How do they pay their staff? So I think that, you know, we, if you look at government policies, uh, and when I was talking about the sort of policies that governments need to bring in, on sort of, if you look at broader policy development, there also needs to be financial support, especially to small and medium enterprises, but then also some kind of social uh, support for consumers going forward. So I'll stop with that. Thank you. Yes. Rajul, should I go? Yes, please. Thank you, Tom. Go ahead. Thank you, Yo, for your question. Uh, I think that in terms of whether e-commerce and delivery and mobile payments will, um, will really take off in or continue their sudden climb that we've noted in Africa and in South Asia, Asia for example, in India, um, I think we can look historically to this because in many situations, there's been a shock, for example, a food safety crisis like the bird flu just 10 years ago that quickly changed a number of, of uh, market structures in many countries in those two regions. For example, moving wet markets out of the center of city, uh, instituting a number of changes in production. So I think that uh, the scramble that we see taking place now to adopt these technologies and extend e-commerce, et cetera, will continue, will be accelerated by this crisis. Secondly, as in the changes that we've seen in the supermarket revolution in the same regions, it'll roll out in waves. Uh, I was just talking to my Nigerian colleague, Sawita Liverpool Tassier today, and she was talking about how the e-commerce has really and delivery has really been grasped by urban Nigerians, uh, but still hasn't gone into the smaller towns and the rural areas. So Jumia, which is operating across Africa, has had a fourfold increase this period relative to the same period last year due to this. And I think that this will continue to accelerate and slowly uh, move out into other areas. Also, of course, modern actors, uh, large-scale actors, and medium-scale small and medium enterprises will be the first to take up these, but it'll, it'll, it'll diffuse out. I think something that will be very generalized and will happen quickly is a, um, a continuation of the use of e-platforms in wholesale markets and um, logistics hubs that has already really taken off in a place like Myanmar uh, in a situation that 
just a year ago, I thought would never see any kind of e-platform in the Benin uh, Pulse Association and in the dry zone of Myanmar. Suddenly now uh, they've adopted it, they're using it in poor areas of India, using e-platforms for truck services. These have all leapt into action and I don't think they're going to be undone after uh, the COVID crisis. Thank you. Rajul, you're muted. Okay, thank you for that. Can you hear me now? Super. Let me come back to the live questions and then I will come to Rob Voss in a few minutes for him to ask questions. But uh, let me direct the first question to Yo. Uh, Yo, this question comes in from Klaus and I believe it's referring to your remarks at the beginning. Klaus mentions resilience is key. What low and middle income countries have proved to be the most resilient up to now and what were the main reasons? So Yo, over to you. Um, thank you. The, um, sorry, yes, we can hear you. Sign on my screen. Well, I, I think it's not so much country versus country. I think it's much more the type of, of, of value chain or supply system uh, versus another that has been more or less resilient. Okay. So we've seen, if you look globally that, um, and I know Rob has done quite a bit of work on that as well. Like, I mean, there's been, I always have to be careful how to put this because there have been tremendous problems. Okay, let, let me make that clear. And there's a lot of vulnerability. At the same time, if you look globally, uh, access to basic food commodities, staple food commodities have held up relatively well. Okay, even in, in fairly poor countries and certainly in rich countries. I mean, just, I mean, there was a rush on the supermarkets at the outbreak of the, of the disease. But after that, the supply of food has been very well, I would say, uh, has been there. There has been very specific problems, for example, in the U.S. meat sector. Now we have the same thing in the German meat sector. I mean, clearly they are there, okay? But on average in these three, it's been uh, pretty good. If you also look at, for example, there's been large problems for, think about the export of, of perishable food and vegetables from Africa to Europe, for example, for Latin America to, <laughs> to the U.S., there's been a lot of problems initially, and that was, why was that? Because some of these vegetable, fresh roasts and vegetables, they came in the same cargo as when the passengers went with, with the same planes, right? But so if there was no more planes because there was no more passengers, so the, <laughs> the transport of the fruit and vegetables was not working. But that has been, uh, companies are starting adjusting to that, basically renting planes specifically for cargo, etc. And so in uh, these things, they have had, relatively well. I think the big problems are clearly in places where a lot of people had to come together uh, basically to do the exchange of the products or to do the transport of things. And so there, there has been, and there has been tremendous problems. I really do not want to underestimate that. Our own surveys at IFPRI, for example, now show in countries like Ethiopia, for example, that urban consumers are really consuming, particularly the poorest, less dairy products, less fruit and vegetables, particularly fresh fruit and et cetera. So they are they're clearly there. But the fact that these things are heterogeneous, that some of them have held up well, that I think is promising in a sense. It basically provides us lessons, okay, how to deal with this. And so my most interesting issue is now, how do we, the, all the innovation entrepreneurship going on in the, the ones which have not held up well, the vulnerables, how can we make those more resilient as well? Thank you. Thank you very much, Yo. Let me come to the next question and I'll direct that to Nemeka. Nemeka, you talked about repositioning 
uh, and pivoting cold hubs. How was it possible for you to do so quickly? What is the role of the banking and credit industry? And a related question is what is happening to the labor force in that you are employing, especially with the women? How were they coping uh, as you were repositioning? Over to you, Nemeka. Thank you very much. Um, you, you know, we actually built code hubs almost without raising uh, credit from the banks. You know, uh, we sold 20%, uh, 27% sorry, of the company to Factor E Ventures. And with that, we raised our initial equity to build five code hubs, which we, was very successful. And after it was successful, we invited a lot of international development partners operating in Nigeria to come and look at what we are doing. And they came and saw what we are doing. They measured the impact. It's very visible and measurable. And we raised a couple of grants to expand rapidly across Nigeria. In our expansion, we targeted two places. We first of all go to a market and we ask the wholesalers and the retailers, where do you get your tomatoes from? They tell us where they get their tomatoes from. And we go there and build a cold room because we understand that it's a cold chain. It's an infrastructure that needs to begin from the farms, you know. So we build those cold rooms strategically within farms and uh, produce aggregation centers. And these produce aggregation centers are basically hubs where smallholder farmers bring their produce and they load it into a truck and the truck takes it to the market, you know. So it's either we are building at the farm cluster or at the produce aggregation center and connecting it all the way to the outdoor market. Because at the end of the day, majority of the food goes to the outdoor market. And that is where consumers come to buy their food, actually. So we hired women all this while. And uh, these women, we are still, we still have a little bit of money. Um, but the women who are our hub operators in markets that were closed, we are taking care of their salaries and believing that the relaxation will kick in very soon. Relaxation of COVID-19 lockdown started yesterday with the announcement by the government that they now allow interstate movements, meaning that a truck can leave Kano filled up with 400 baskets of tomatoes and bring it all the way down to Imo State, a journey of 16 to 18 hours harassed by law enforcement on the road. You know, so that is excellent and that is wonderful. So the women who are running our cold rooms, who serve as our hub operators, loading and offloading food and collecting user money, they are being paid their salaries and uh, we strongly believe that they will be back to work. We engage them every day and uh, uh, we actually organize a lot of strategy sessions during the lockdown, you know, uh, improving their skills and also telling them about our updated standard operating procedures within the company. Yeah. Emeka, thank you so much. I'm going to direct the next question to Tom Riedon. Tom, this is a question coming from Rick Overmars with SNV, and he notes the great intervention on the importance of SMEs. Question is, how important and resilient is cross-border regional trade with SMEs and their supply chains? What is there to win or what is there to improve? Over to you, Tom. Thank you. I think that first I wanted to just signal that uh, a lot of focus is on trade uh, in this crisis, uh, but we should keep in mind that in Africa, 91% of all food consumed is consumed from domestic value chains that don't cross borders. In India, the figure is 97%. Okay, so uh, 
that share, that doesn't mean that trade is not important because it's crucial for uh, several kinds of products. And in place like Africa, only maybe 15% in all of the trade is over borders. And there's uh, specific problems in various places of crossing the borders, for example, maize going from Uganda into Kenya where it's bought. And so in that kind of situation, the keeping open the ports and the border points is absolutely crucial. And, and there's been a mixed uh, success, sometimes uh, a lack of success in keeping those points flowing and open. I like to say that um, the, the, the infrastructure, the highways, the ports, the border crossings are the bones of the food system. And then the blood of the food system are the wholesalers, the logistics uh, people. And so to keep them moving and flowing, it's necessary to make sure that those points are functioning. And very often it's an infrastructure issue or repair of infrastructure. And sometimes it's a policy issue where in panic, some government might uh, shut something down or hold it back. So I think the cross border point is extremely important um, especially for key situations in Africa where cities are in deficit of products from another country and it has to be allowed to be fluid. So I applaud Rick's point. Thank you very much, Tom. I want to give a heads up to Rob Voss that I will come to him after the next question for any questions he may wish to ask the panelists. But let me take this for next question and I will direct it to Stephen. Uh, Stephen, this question comes from Dr. Hamad Badar, Assistant Professor at the University of Agriculture, Faisalabad in Pakistan. And his uh, intervention is as follows. Small growers in Asia are an important component of the food system in Asia. It is difficult for them to adopt digital technologies and e-commerce. Food industry often prefers large farmers and neglects small growers. What is the food industry doing to include small farmers in e-commerce? Over to you, Stephen. Thank you very much. Uh, and I'm trying to answer this question because I have to be honest, I, I am not very conversant in what um, the food industry is doing in terms of supporting uh, smallholders with e-commerce. But I think it's, it's certainly critical, and we've seen from what's taken place with COVID-19, that we bring everybody on board uh, with digitalization and also with e-commerce. I think that um, the reality is that, you know, no one can be left behind in this current situation that we are facing. Smallholders, uh, SMEs are a critical part of the food value chain. And we've seen that. Uh, we've seen the issue where some governments in, in Asia haven't realized, for example, the importance of smallholders. The fact that to get produce from the farm to the fork, you actually need farmers to get out into the fields. And if you have a curfew that prevents farmers and their families from getting out into the field, well, that has a, a knock-on impact on the whole food value chain. So I think we've got an opportunity here. I mean, COVID has, you know, it's a, it's a tremendous challenge. And I'm, I'm stating the obvious when I say that, but it also provides us with an opportunity to change the way we do business. And perhaps for some of the large companies that we work with, you know, it's an opportunity to bring some of these smallholders on board. Uh, you know, we've got 
the technology. We've got the knowledge around e-commerce. If you look at uh, some of the e-commerce platforms that we have here in Asia, like Alibaba, Lazada, Red March, et cetera, these are all organizations that can use their resources, their knowledge base, and best practice to support smallholders as well. I think that to do that, however, we need collaboration. So we need uh, good industry, we need governments, we need intergovernmental organizations, we need organizations like IFPRI to get on board because we need to collaborate, partner, and bring everybody on this journey. Thank you, Stephen. I wonder if uh, Tom also wishes to comment, given that he focused on e-commerce quite a bit also in his remarks. Tom, did you wish to come in for a moment? Yes, uh, just to pick up from Stephen's point, uh, the e-commerce that's been uh, brought to bear has been often in partnership with small enterprises in delivery and logistics. And e-commerce has either been uh, small platforms of local companies that are that have risen up and started to gain traction or large companies like Lasada that he mentioned that's now owned by Alibaba for the past couple of years and I'll give an example from Lazada although I could give one from small enterprise too uh, where uh, there was um, a, in Malaysia a flower firm that was a supplier a farm and they had very good contacts with a lot of retailers before COVID. And then when COVID struck, they lost those links to the retailers. And so Lasada came in and is a new business opportunity that's win-win. It set up links between that flower firm and the many retailers. So it became a business to business, not just a, a, a business to consumer activity. So I think that's an example. Thank you, Tom. Let me now come to Rob Voss. Rob, I'm sure you have questions too for the panelists. So let me come over to you now. Well, thanks, Rajul, and to everybody. It's a really fascinating discussion. Um, <clears throat> I would have many questions, but let me focus on one issue that may have not come to the fore as much as it should. Um, that's the demand side and the consumer side. So what we are seeing as one of the impacts of this crisis, not just that um, people lose their incomes uh, and through that uh, may have less access to food, uh, but also they're changing their consumption uh, patterns. So particularly we see a shift towards cheaper foods, uh, typically less nutritious foods, uh, um, the basic staples, uh, the gra basic grains and so on, and away from meats and uh, animal source foods, uh, but particularly also fruits and vegetables. So um, my question to um, maybe um, the makeup, Robert and Stephen, is how's, how their businesses are anticipating uh, to that change and whether that's, they see it just a temporary change or a more lasting change. So Yamika, for instance, he mentioned that the, um, uh, markets closure in Nigeria was was a main factor behind uh, having to shift uh, his business and and downsize, uh, but maybe also with the change in consumer demand, that that may be something that uh, even with the opening of markets uh, will still have reduced demand for the uh, the fruits and vegetables that go through the cold hubs. And likewise for for the more the industrial side, um, uh, I guess it. There's also concerns not just because of incomes and price change, but also because of food safety issues. 
Um, but also some people change their consumer behavior because of they think um, with the awareness of COVID-19 and the risk may be higher with people that are malnourished uh, and maybe overweight to shift their demand to more nutritious food. So we see sort of these paradoxical trends. So how are businesses anticipating uh, those trends uh, moving forward? Yeah, well, thanks. Let, 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 me, let me kick off. I think we're seeing indeed a number of trends. Um, some of them, they will maybe ease up as easement also comes. Eh? So if you're thinking about the out of home consumption, people are now wanting to enjoy, you know, restaurant experience at home. If you, you look at more at the developed kind of markets, so concluding propositions, etc. Um, but for instance, this whole trend towards plant-based eating, which was already starting before COVID came, and now, you know, almost helped by you know, the crisis that you see in the food chain around meat, that people are starting to get more interest in that. We definitely see a further acceleration of that. And if you're now thinking ahead, we do also expect that there will be an even larger demand on more affordable and more healthy meal propositions. Yeah? No doubt that as a consequence of everything that we're seeing at the moment, people will be even become more cash constrained. Yeah? Um, so what can we do to you know, collectively find solutions that people can still enjoy an affordable meal, the right kind of healthy meal, um, and, and, you know, and, and have access to that? So those are definitely trends that, uh, that we see. Um, and we already see that now with countries opening up and closing, closing down again, you see some of these trends you know, moving up and down. Um, but some will definitely stay in the uh, in the in the, the further acceleration and land based. I definitely hope will be uh, will be one of them. Yeah, I hope that that answers a bit of your uh, your question. Thank you, Robert. Can we go then to Stephen next? Yeah. Um, so 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 a really good question there, Robert. I think we've done some work here in uh, Asia with uh, uh, artificial intelligence firm looking at consumer behavior. And um, it's very interesting sort of things that consumers have been looking for when it comes to food. So they've been looking for, if you like, if you look at different food categories, they're looking for food that has a longer shelf life, obviously, um, makes sense. People want to stock up their pantries with raw materials uh, to cook, bake, etc. cetera. Um, frozen food, interestingly, has declined uh, in many of the markets here in Asia. Uh, there's, there is a, a push for food products that consumers perceive as being immunity boosting. So, uh, you know, belief that if they take more vitamins, supplements, etc., they boost their immunity against COVID-19. And then also traditional ingredients like lemon, ginger, etc., there's been sort of a demand for that kind of stuff. Interestingly, however, uh, there's also been a strong demand for snacking and comfort food. Uh, I guess while consumers are at home, um, there's a lot of anxiety, etc. Um, there's been a lot more munching on cookies, chips, etc. And then to, to Robert's point as well, we've definitely seen uh, a, a shift to, to plant-based proteins. So, so those are, I guess, some of uh, the key takeaways that we have seen here in Asia in terms of uh, consumer behavior in this crisis. I think another thing that, that's probably um, going on globally as well is that more consumers, perhaps because they've been locked down, um, are actually eating at home 
and cooking at home. So there's a lot more demand for online grocery delivery, but also then cooking more healthy and nutritious food at home rather than eating out in, in restaurants, et cetera. Now, Singapore uh, relaxed its sort of lockdown on the 29th, on two weeks ago, actually. And while there's been quite a few people going out to restaurants, so they opened restaurants, not last Friday, the Friday before, um, there's still not the kind of demand that we would have seen here in Singapore previously uh, in terms of going out and eating. So I guess those are some of the key takeaways that we have seen here uh, in Asia. Thank you. And shall we hear from the Mecca then? I was, I went off, you know, uh, when the question came in. So I don't know if you mind repeating the question. Rob, do you wish to come back in? Uh, yes, Nameka. Well, the question to you basically was how you uh, expect the demand for fruits and vegetables in the areas where you work as cold hubs to, to change moving forward. So um, what we've seen in terms of changing consumption behavior in, in many parts of the world is particularly where it comes to poor areas where uh, because of losses of income, people shift more towards um, the staple foods, uh, maize and, and basic grains, and so on and away from more nutritious foods or perishable foods, um, partly because of a matter of income and partly because of uh, concerns about their food safety and so on. So how you're anticipating that for the cold hops uh, moving forward. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, I think there will be a significant increase in consumption of fruit and vegetables moving forward after COVID. Because, you know, a lot of our people here have started, they, I think they've developed their own COVID vaccine by eating very good food, very green food. And they say that it's giving them immunity. You know, there is a lot of consumption of fluted pumpkins and other greens. There's a lot of uh, fruits, uh, bananas and so on being consumed on a daily basis. Everyone has this belief that if you increase your immunity, that the virus cannot overwhelm you. And that is everywhere in Nigeria. So post-COVID, I think that has actually stuck with a lot of people. And post-COVID, there's going to definitely be an increase in consumption of fruit and vegetables, you know. For us at Code Hubs, we provide infrastructure to extend shelf life of food and have high quality fruit and vegetable available for consumption by the local population. Our goal is to extend the shelf life of food from two days to more than 21 days. So the quality will be there, it will be fresh, and it can be consumed by the local population. So we'll continue delivering that service. Um, and you know there are disadvantages of COVID. On our business side, we are lower in revenue, but we strongly believe that post-COVID, there will be huge demand for cold hubs. You know. For the past, uh, just to chip in, over the past uh, uh, one year, we've been talking to uh, catfish, dealers in Nigeria to use our service, you know, and they say, hey, listen, we just harvest our catfish and we sell. Today, they give us like two calls every day asking for, when are you guys coming to build a cold room for us? We've harvested fish. There are no buyers. We need somewhere to keep the, cold, uh, the fish cold, you know, so, and there is a lot of demand. Strawberry farmers are also increased demand. We have a lot of demand going on. So post-COVID, I think we're going to have a lot of work to do. Thank you, Nemeka. Tom, did I see your hand going up? Did you wish to respond? Yeah, come in, please, Tom. 
I think that diets of consumers have been changing very rapidly for 20 to 30 years in the regions we're talking about. And if you think of it as a long guitar string, and then you think of a crisis as plucks that string and it, it reverberates and it goes back to normal. And I think that there's every pressure to go back. And uh, processed food was, is already a major part of consumption in all of these regions. It's not starting, it's, it's more than half of food consumption driven by women working outside the home and other convenience things. That's gonna continue. And it's gonna intensify a little bit maybe with these sorts of things. And then the diversification, if you look at it in urban areas of Africa, only one third of the consumption is in grains and uh, normally, and two thirds is in non-grains. In Asia, that's three quarters are in non-grains and one quarter in grains. This will bounce back as soon as the logistics and the wholesale is moving again, as Nemeka was saying, and he'll be on the front lines getting it back. Basically, uh, the consumption will resume. It's not gonna go back to just not eating that. Processed food will, of course, be there. It might receive a little push. Um, and I think what will happen is also, uh, I've been a student of the supermarket revolution in these countries, ex expanding extremely quickly. What you found after the avian flu was that a lot of people rushed to the supermarkets to get chicken, packaged chicken from CP and from other uh, uh, producers in the supermarket because they trusted it more. And after the crisis, they still stayed shopping in supermarkets. This happened in the US also with various crises. So there'll be a little bit of a shift in where you get things. Uh, supermarkets will go forward faster. E-commerce will go forward faster but it won't rock the fundamental boat of the diversification of the diets that was already in play. Tom, thank you so much. I'm aware that we are close to uh, the end of the time and there are a number of questions we could not take. Uh, and I apologize for that, but let me read aloud the names of those people uh, and appreciate that they took the time to ask us questions. These include Vamsi Tata from the Culinary Institute of America, Mahesh Chandra from India, uh, Mr. Snoja from uh, India, um, Anastasia Crespo from Project Innovate in Newark, uh, Stepman, Solomon Oyinaran, uh, Kirutika Natarajna, and so forth. Apologies that we could not come to your questions, but I'd like to give all the speakers a chance to give us the key takeaway messages, and then I will call on Rob Voss to make closing remarks. Let me go in reverse order of our speakers and begin with Tom, and then go next to uh, Stephen, uh, and then go next to uh, Robert, Nemeka, and end with Yoswinen. And each of you, if we just hand over to each other, that'd be great. So let me call on Tom to start us off with your final takeaway messages. Tom? Supply chains in Africa and in South Asia and in the rest of Asia are absolutely critical for food security. Before COVID, they were growing very quickly. They were transforming quickly. They're very dynamic. Small and medium enterprises are at the heart of those supply chains, and they've also been dynamic. What we've seen after the shock is that, as was mentioned, they were knocked to the mat, okay? And then after they were knocked to the mat, they put one arm up, another arm up, one leg up, another leg up, and they're getting up. And so I think that the key lesson is 
for donors, for governments, for private sector associations to say, look at it's it's rising back up again. Let's think in the nitty gritty of what are the things that are missing that we can help to leverage, help them get back up again, not reinvent the wheel, not push them aside and start the thing over ourselves, but try to think what do they need to get lifted off that mat and help themselves to get up. And as I said, it's bones and blood. The bones are the wholesale markets, the highways, the cross-border ports and, and points. It's the physical infrastructure and the policies that surround it. The blood are all these active agents, the wholesalers, the logistics, the, the, what I call the hidden middle, the people that were ignored to a certain extent in the debates beforehand. They're the ones that are gonna hook the farmers up to the consumers. They're the ones that will be champions of this. They're large enterprises like we've heard here. They're small enterprises like we've read about and heard in the case of the small fishers. And I think that e-commerce and digitalization will be part of that solution going forward. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so just to summarize, do I see, to, to state the obvious, we are currently facing an unprecedented crisis which is putting unexpected pressure, certainly on food supply chains here across Asia. Resolving this, and I believe that resolving some of the pressure that we see on the food supply chains is possible. There are opportunities to do this, but it will require uncommon collaboration between governments, civil society, academia, and industry. Because at the end of the day, we need to ensure that consumers across Asia and globally have access to safe, healthy, and nutritious food. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Look, we, we were talking about it just a bit earlier. Some changes will go and some changes will stay. And if, if I could, you know, if I had a wish that at least one good thing would come out of COVID. I would personally hope that it would help us to now really as one collective accelerate the work that we need to do to come to a more inclusive and a more sustainable food system. And, you know, I'm convinced that we'll need to be a global food system in order for it to be resilient, like we were just talking about, but also for it to be affordable uh, for the 8 billion people on, the, on this planet. So uh, I hope that is, uh, that is one change that COVID will really help us to, uh, to drive home fast. Thank you. The Mecca. Thank you very much, uh, Robert. I think really um, is the, the, the COVID has actually exposed the uh, inefficient food supply chain that exists in the world, you know. And it has also brought to the forefront that it's very difficult for us to achieve food security because of this inefficient food supply chain. And I think that post-COVID, after all this lockdown has been lifted everywhere in the world and we return back to normal, I think the global food players should look deeply at the food supply chain. It is so broken and they try as much as possible to fix it. I think that work has to be done both by private sector, by public sector, by civil society, and every other person who is super interested in food. There is a role that digital uh, and e-commerce and infrastructure plays. And I think that bringing every party together 
will enable us to achieve uh, uh, an efficient food supply chain. There is no hunger in the world. It's actually a problem of supply chain. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I thought this was a wonderful panel. Um, the point I want to make is that there is, um, I mean, it's always interesting when you talk to people from the private sector, and today was not different, that they focus just as much on the opportunities than on the challenges there. And I think that's really a, an important lesson for all of us who are studying what is going on, okay, to see the opportunities in, in the current crisis. Uh, re related to that, I really enjoyed the point on, on Nigeria, how so far, most of the stories I heard about consumers' beliefs how um, on, on particular foods they should not eat because they are, would be infected by COVID. So here is a little bit the other way around, that actually the COVID gives an incentive to eat more healthy than before. That's uh, very interesting. I also learned from Robert that Heineken was not an essential product in, uh, in Brazil during the COVID. Uh, I wonder whether that applies to beer in general, because the Brazilians are major stakeholders in, in uh, Budweiser and Stella, so I don't know that. And the last thing I learned was that Tom can give a full talk in wrapping up uh, comments. Okay, with that, Rajul, back to you. Thank you very much. Thank you to all of the speakers. I would like to now turn to Rob Voss to give closing remarks. Rob, over to you. Thanks, uh, Rajul, and thanks to everybody. This indeed a fascinating discussion, if um, anything that has come from this health crisis is to make clear the centrality of the food system. So without food, no health. And I think what also the panels made clear, this big paradox that we're seeing, we see on the one hand food supply chains that are very resilient and have been able to hold up amidst these big shocks on supply sides and also big demand shocks. Um, and continue providing uh, foods in general. Right? But we've also seen these big vulnerabilities um, to COVID-19 directly and indirectly because of the preventative measures that led to severe disruptions and in which uh, quite a bit of heterogeneity in the impacts are being felt across the system. Um, so within that, uh, what uh, I learned from this panel particularly is number one that, well, what we know of course is that since the food system is mainly driven by market players is that uh, the ind individual players and collectively have shown quite a bit of um, entrepreneurship and innovation in order to prevent this uh, overall health crisis to become a major food crisis uh, around the world. We're not there yet, as the, the risks are still there, but particularly in the, the shifts that, in terms of entrepreneurship, made that Nick was uh, talking about and quickly shifting his business into different locations to adapt to changing circumstances. Uh, Unilever are providing credits to their suppliers and they make sure that uh, their supply chains that keep up right, but uh, more particularly also the adjustments made through e-commerce. Um, and uh, both set by big players, but most importantly, what Tom Reardon uh, emphasized by also by a lot of small and medium scale enterprises that despite the big hits they've taken, uh, that have found ways to pull themselves up. Um, that doesn't mean we're there yet. Of course, with COVID-19, we can expect a lot of the ongoing dynamics uh, to continue, maybe with renewed 
impulses also that have come from COVID-19 uh, through this uh, innovation and entrepreneurship in the private sector. Uh, but we also know that uh, without uh, good government support uh, to facilitate the business in keeping the green lanes open for trade flows and, uh, and workers, but also to facilitate um, food safety, as well as uh, do the things that need to be done to protect uh, access to food to uh, many uh, consumers. But also, uh, and that will close with that, is the challenges that we had before COVID-19 are not going away. So we'll still have to challenge the threat of climate change uh, affecting our food systems, the health threats that uh, current food systems pose in many ways, and we've seen some good examples that maybe we see some shifts in the right direction, but uh, probably not all is well uh, once the, with the pandemic under control. So with that, we can only hope that with the entrepreneurship and innovation uh, that we're seeing along food value chains, um, that that will also be the basis uh, to leverage uh, towards more inclusive, healthy and more sustainable food systems. Uh, and hopefully we can have more events like this to monitor well how the private sector is changing um, in, in all its forms and all its shapes in order to get to those uh, more inclusive, healthy and sustainable food systems. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rob. Thank you to all of our speakers, to our participants from all around the world, Alice, for those uh, who facilitated this virtual event. We hope to see you all at our next IFRI virtual event very soon. In the meantime, stay well, stay safe, and uh, thank you very much, everyone. <laughs>